Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Inevitable Podcast. As you know, I'm your host, Pedro Soren, a VC author and entrepreneur, also the founder and CEO of Atman. Um, Atman is a close community of founders and investors playing long-term games together. My mission is to partner with inevitable people. And in this episode, I had the honor of talking to my friend, John Cogno. He's a partner at Costa Nova Ventures. Important also to say that he rose through the ranks starting as an associate, and that's uh, how we met. Uh, we started in venture capital at the same time, about seven years ago. John is a good guy. You know, definitely when I think about John, that's that's my mental response. At Costa Nova, he leads seed and series A investments in tenacious and thoughtful founders who change how business gets done. Some of Costanoa's investments include companies such as Alation, Bilgo, Demandbase, Canna Security, Roadster, and Quizlet. And in this episode, we talk about John's past experience at McKinsey as a consultant, how he got into venture capital, the current VC landscape, and some of his mental frameworks when he's thinking about partnering with inevitable founders. I hope you like it. I had a wonderful conversation with John and enjoy the next episode. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time for us to have this conversation today. Uh, it's, yeah, absolutely. Man. It's a pleasure. I appreciate the, 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 the opportunity and, uh, and it's awesome. I, I think, I mean, we've known each other for how many years now? Maybe five? Yeah, I think I met you six months into my venture career. So it'd be almost five years now. Well, and um, it's uh, crazy how time flies. Yes. Mm. A funny thing is that uh, that uh, you know there is a, that you guys had this uh, the, a partner right like Neo Wakio Grosso and um, back when he was thinking about uh, hiring you for Castanoa he also got in touch with me when I was still at Funders Club and I had oh a, man well they made a terrible <laughs> terrible mistake hiring me instead of you man. I don't think so <laughs> I think that it, it turned out that it was good for both of us um, in, <laughs> in in many different ways but uh, but and that's that's how. We we got connected and um, and then I had conversations with him and uh, it, you know they wanted someone with your profile uh, that has had the consulting uh, background because I think that they had way too many salespeople already in place which is more of my background um, so uh, but then you know we met at that meeting and then ended up becoming friends from jamming with the guitar everything i mean it's just it was it was yeah it was nice. I, I, we, we, we made tacos at your place it was uh it was friends at first sight um <laughs> no it's um it's been so cool to see how you've grown over the last five years man and just you know how you've scaled up you know your own own firm and um you know excited to talk more about your journey and happy to share some of mine too today but thanks for having me it's great to be here oh my pleasure and uh you know, I, we always like to start just learning more about how you grew up and what type of, um, you know, family setup, size of, you know, city or town and uh, how was your childhood? Yeah. Um, yeah, I grew up in Lexington, Kentucky, and uh, it was a great place to be a kid. You know, it was um, it was a sort of a, a big, small town, it felt like, right? There were, I think, know 300,000 people but it didn't feel that big and it was um I grew up near all my close friends I grew up riding my bike and playing outside and loved playing games and um had a, had a happy childhood um you know I think it was 
uh, interesting. And my parents divorced when I was very young, and uh, I'm the only boy. Uh, I have three sisters, uh, um, and we're all pretty spread out. And I think that the combination of those two experiences, I was uh, kind of playing peacemaker from a fairly early age uh, between my siblings and sometimes between my, my parents, both of whom love me very much, but, you know, was, was sometimes uh, put in the middle of that. And I think um, that that definitely is something that's probably served me well in my career is just, you know, being able to um, you know, love and appreciate different people who might have different points of view and trying to understand where everybody's coming from and uh, play a role in helping people see each other. So, um, you know, grew up in, um, when I was six, my dad bought me a subscription to Wired Magazine and uh, kind of fell in love with technology then. And grew up um, playing sports. I was really into theater. I played guitar in a band, as, as you know, and, um, you know, kind of ended my high school career ready to leave Kentucky and go see, see the world. I'd fallen in love with Chicago. I went on a mission trip with my youth group to Chicago and wanted to go to school there and um, entered Northwestern actually as a theater major. Uh, oh, no way. Long, long and crazy winding road from being a theater major to working in VC. But uh, that was that was my childhood at a glance. That's awesome. Now, thanks for such a good, almost uh, Barbara Minto Pyramid principle answer. <laughs> Uh, but uh, um, now that's uh, that's interesting. When you, um, what was your original interest in technology when you were a kid? When you when you were a kid, basically, like there, there's that moment I think that we realize that we we are nerds. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, uh, how was that like for for you? Yeah, well, my dad was always a gadget guy uh, and always was playing with you know new keyboards and monitors and um, cameras. And um, I grew up as a total Lego and Kinex freak. And so I was just always building stuff. Um, and I think the kind of uh, combination of playing with technology with my dad, you know, building structures in my spare time, my, my parents, I think one of the good things they did was they never let me watch TV on the weekdays. So I was always, you know, outside or playing with Legos basically as a kid. And, um, I think I, I think what I, I sort of picked up on early on was that like builders tended to go into tech and they tended to build companies and software and products. And, you know, my dad got me a laptop when I was pretty young, maybe nine or 10. I think he just gave me one of his old laptops. And I just remember being kind of immediately um, enraptured in it and just um, playing with different applications and, you know, poking around the internet and uh, playing video games and, um, I don't know that there was a single moment when I thought like, oh man, tech is what I want to do with my career. I think it took trying a couple of other things and kind of always feeling the siren song of tech. Um, but I think it, it comes back to, you know, it's not that you can't build in other industries, but I do think builders are most attracted to tech and startups. Yeah. And I think that was what, what appealed to me. I think that, you know, one theory that I've grown to at least think it's uh, there's some reality to it is that uh, for all of us, basically, it's almost like a shortcut for you to be able to be yourself without having to put the effort mm -hmm. on the social awkwardness uh, part of it. Because I think every all of us, you know, right today as investors, you know, we communicate well, we cannot be shy, you know, we're pretty extrovert like that. These are important characteristics in venture, but uh, we learned those, right? I don't think we grew up like that. So. Um, I think that the internet and just being in touch with tech at, that, at an early age uh, 
gave this uh, psychological shortcut for you to be able to be yourself without having to try it in the real world. And um, having been the last generation, and I don't think I'm going to sound very old, but we are the last generation that grew up without a smartphone, right? Um, So we were forced to actually understand what it was like to grow up offline and then understand the power of online and kind of live with this dichotomy, um, which which is uh, it doesn't exist today, right? Like I, uh, I don't know what's going to happen when. I mean, you're about to have uh, kids, so it's like I, you know, I think that that's interesting. And you think about being a father and what's the role of technology 100%. will play in your kid's life? Because for me, if you look at how it can, you see sometimes these parents that are using tech to just quiet their babies, but they're not doing the mm-hmm. work. So it's almost as if they're taking this childhood uh, shortcut that we took in order to like accelerate or d- diminish our social awkwardness and become, you know, legit humans. But then just being lazy parents, putting an iPad there and then leaving the kid, you know, like, okay, you're going to stop crying. And I wonder what that will look like in a few years. But Yeah. No, I, it's something my wife and I uh, are already worrying about. And it's interesting because it does feel like a lot of the people I know who work in technology are maybe the most um, anxious about the impact technology can have on kids and are maybe often the people that put the most guardrails around technology uh, and kids. And obviously you like see a lot, a lot of schools in San Francisco where there's like no computers. And it's kind of an interesting dichotomy that the people that are, you know, building tech are often the ones that are most afraid of it oh, it's well. because we know Probably it right for, we know like that it's, it's basically yes. you know it's like if you think about like even our like, apps like robin hood how are they designed they're designed to give you precise dopamine hits and get you addicted to it uh right. i think you know you have to use time limits on some social media i think i think we've all been there like you, know, you open up instagram everything is so nice and pretty and perfect and suddenly two hours have gone by and you're scrolling your life away um yep. and I mean, they have hundreds, we know this, they have hundreds of thousands of people just to make sure that that is the case. And then, and we, I think I'd like to consider that, you know, we are somewhat with like have our individual sovereignty and like in a functioning brain and we still get caught into that loop. So imagine a kid, right? So knowing that for me, I mean, there was even that article, an article in the New York Times um, talking about how many of like tech workers make actual nannies sign a contract that they're not going to be used using their devices when they are with their kids and the parents are not there. Even Spiegel, right, which in my opinion is the most brilliant product genius of our generation, right? He invented all these features that everyone else copied and recreated social media uh, multiple times. And he doesn't allow his kids to use any devices. Yeah. So you know, that tells you something, yeah. right? It does. It does. It does. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting to think about what technology... Um, looked like when we were kids and what it looks like now right because i think about dial-up internet and like the the pain of trying to access the internet and having to negotiate with my mom when we wouldn't be able to use our landline phone and then you get online and you know instant messenger was like where i would be spending all my time but like instant messenger is just text box and you're talking to people and like we would have conversations amongst our friends and sure we were talking about pokemon or whatever but the point is it was engagement right and then it was um you know, exploration of like, what could this desktop computer do? And so you play with, you know, Microsoft Paint and you, um, you know, maybe are poking around on like Ebom's world or different like little websites, but it, it does feel like looking back on it, it was exploration and creation, not just 
consumption that's drip fed to you and sort of a perfect, as you said, like, you know, micro doses of dopamine to keep you addicted. Maybe I'm looking at it with rose tinted glasses, but I do look back at my, uh, the way I engaged with technology as a kid and felt like it, you know, feel like it was more positive than maybe what, you know, the give the kid the iPad and get him to shut up experience looks like. That's right. I also think that we had the privilege of having, uh, you know, massive step functions of evolution across, uh, like, you know, the, the food, the the spectrum of stack, right? Like a technology that includes the penetration of broadband, the fact that we started Mm -hmm. only, you know, it was a desktop thing. So you were stuck with your, your, your Mac or your PC they were all wired in. Then you have your first laptop and that kind of feels magical. And you had, you know, your dumb phone. Then you get a smartphone that isn't that great, you know, a Palm Trail or a Nokia. And then the iPhone comes out and then you have these, you know, and then the App Store comes out. So I think we've observed all of that today. You were born and I mean, the, the ecosystem is there at full pace, full speed. And um, how do you digest that? You know, one of the themes that I would love to back is a full stack, like stalling parental control, basically. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, in in terms of like a framework for life, I I think Nassinta Lab summarizes Mm -hmm. in a really good way. In your family, you want to be a communist. With your friends, you want to be a socialist. At the municipal level, you want to be a Democrat. Um, and then at the uh, you know state level, Republican, federal, libertarian. That I think is like a very good summarization of how you should live your life. Um, and whenever I have kids, I want full control of the Wi-Fi, of the network, of like everything that they're doing, their devices, just to at least provide them the opportunity to think for themselves, but understand what they're being programmed into, right? Because that's a danger. That's that is my biggest fear. Is that they start being, you know, I don't know, defending ideas that um, yeah. that I think are fundamentally wrong. <laughs> yeah, the um, I think certainly when they're when they're like kids, right? You know, having a really clear understanding and control over what they're consuming is is um, at least knowing. By the way, saying all this is someone who's still kid is on the way in three months. That 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 feels like the right philosophy. You know, one of the um, quotes that uh i am blanking it's the founder of red sea ventures but i heard him on a podcast a a ways back that i just thought was so great was you know tug of war is a or uh, raising kids is a game of tug of war that you'll ultimately have to lose yes and um it's a good one as a uh as a you know infant and as a toddler and as a young child definitely having a tight amount of control and then you know having mentors and friends who have kids who are teenagers how much control can you really exert without um, stifling them? And it's it's so scary, right? Because I mean, especially as you get into teenage years, like bullying is something that cyberbullying is such a real thing and a, a really scary one. Um, and you want to protect them from that. And yet, I also remember uh, feeling, you know, like my parents were too controlling at times when I was a teenager, and that I you know needed to have more freedom. And it's uh, man, a ton of questions. The only thing I know about parenting is that there's so many things I don't know that I'm going to have to learn. So yes. it's funny. This isn't what I thought I'd, we'd be talking about, but I'm, I'm glad that we are. <laughs> so, no, it, so my po- this podcast is different. Um, 
It's long form. Yeah, we'll talk like plenty it. of venture. It's no problem. Not a problem. But oh, that, no, that's I'm not the, in a rush. That's the, uh, that's the, 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 the I don't know how I'm going to do that. I'm glad that you as a friend will have a kid in three months and congratulations for that, by the way. Uh, so you. then I can, um, I can ask, I, um, it's, uh, but yeah, I would love like, and, and, and all the startups in this space that I've seen, uh, the issue though, is that like, it's really tough for you to have full stack control because ultimately, um, you, you know, assume that your kid will be more tech savvy than than you 100% by the time that you know you're you're like I don't know thinking that you know something because you have some sort of like a VPN or uh, you create a different a private mesh network for him you know he'll be already streaming you know I don't know having his own Twitch channel and he bought a phone already without your consent and mm -hmm. through like if he's, he's a resourceful kid you know they'll find a way so I, I oh, yeah. ultimately I, you know it's probably like you want to be very, very good at and a very present parent before puberty hits, and then when that hits, that's when you start losing the tug of war, maybe, and you hold and you and you and you let go of the rope when they're eating. Probably that's the. If, that's right. If I had to think about it, but um, all right. Well, since you tweeted a lot about uh, Miami, we've had these conversations. I just arrived in Miami, as you can see. Still need to like hang my yes. my my frames back there, um, and. Uh, <laughs> You also, uh, you had a pit bull at a conference that you helped organize in Miami, right? A long time ago. So yes. Mr. 305. So why don't we talk about, yeah, let's talk about that. We were, we were ahead of the curve. Yeah. No, it's funny. My, um, one of my first work experiences out of college was working for a, a startup called Tech Week. And we put on tech conferences all around the U.S. and kind of focusing on, uh, emerging innovation ecosystems. So the company was founded in Chicago and um, you know, at the time, uh, and, and still, you know, great emerging innovation ecosystem in Chicago um, and went from Chicago to um, Detroit, to LA, to New York, to um, kind of everywhere that wasn't San Francisco. And uh, I think it was the eighth conference we had, we did Tech Week Miami. And this was 2013. Uh, and uh, it was, such an incredible experience. Uh, I was, you know, 21 at the time, and uh, I lived in Miami for three months and helped organize this tech conference. And, um, you know, it was funny at the time, the mayor of Miami at the time actually came out and said, like, it's silly that there's a Tech Week Miami. Like, Miami is a tourism city. It's not a tech city. Like, who are these people hosting this Tech Week? Like, this is ridiculous. Um, well, but even is then, right you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I want to find this article because I distinctly remember an article where he was quoted, like, why is there a Miami Tech Week? Yeah. And, and it was called Miami Tech Week. And of course, we had a big Miami Tech Week last week. Um, and uh, it was it was hosted with this other group, Emerge Americas. So anyway, I was I was dropped into Miami and I was working with a bunch of people who were you know older and more experienced event organizers than myself. But um, even then, what was so cool was, you know, it really was um, ca capturing Latin American entrepreneurship. And so we had entrepreneurs coming in from, you know, across Latin America and Southern America to this conference. And it was um, really clear that there was just such a strong uh, entrepreneurial spirit down there. Um, and it, it actually, I think, was of, you know, these first eight conferences we had probably the one where I felt the energy the most. Um, oh yeah. And, uh, so you mentioned we had, you know, I can't claim credit for this. This, there were, you know, people that had relationships and pulled strings, but we got Pitbull to come and talk. And, um, I, you know, I, we had eight 
eight events, or I think by the time I'd left, we'd done 10 events. And look, some really big names, you know, that came and talked to Tech Week. Like we had Travis Kalanick come and talk. And I got to tell you, uh, Pimple was actually the best speaker we ever had. He was incredible. Um, and, and I mean, genuinely insightful and interesting and telling stories about how he'd negotiated deals with Bud Light to get equity in the company and how he thinks about building brands and building audiences and even talking about community like ahead of his time. And the, the quote I'll never forget is, you know, he's like, people think they're like dunking on me when they talk about how I'm a bad rapper, but like, I don't care at all about being a good rapper. I just want to be the best businessman in the exactly. world. Like, that's my goal. I love it. Like that's, I love that. You know what you're trying to do here. So anyway, it was a, it was a very fun conference, great energy. And it is crazy to see, you know, eight years later, um, it's, you know, it's back and coming full circle and, um, and, and without a doubt, there's something exciting and real happening yes. in Miami. Well, so, uh, I, I have a lot of respect for, uh, for Pitbull because, uh, as, as a business guy, because, you know, and, and, and you know, his music is nice. You know, there is a moment where it does, um, you know, kind of like brings that joy of a group and a rowdy crowd, etc. Uh, but you know, if you look, if you really think about it, right, like this is a very, very successful guy uh, that is not really like good looking, very short and bald, and he still made it, right? And that's a great um, uh, example for uh, you know amazing uh, determination. I have a lot of admiration for him in in the sense that he certainly and um, he lives the most authentic life that he can possibly live, and that's that for me. That's success, you know. But um, um, but I would say though we've uh, I've been to one of the emerges and uh, way back when and the I do believe that that energy existed but um, the Latam venture capital scene that we have today uh, is very different uh, than than the one that we've had at that time so whatever founder that was you know going to a conference in Miami for tech. You know, and then you'd have these businesses that were totally random, right? Oh, yeah, we're doing digital transformation of something like Nicaragua or we're doing this for Mexico. And, like, the companies were not good. Like, I remember when I when I met them. And, 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 and frankly, like, it, 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 for me, it always felt like um, basically almost like uh, like fake founders that were just, you know, from uh, wealthy families in Latin America. And they had their, you know, their apartments in, in Miami. Uh, because if you're really rich in LATAM, um, instead of going to the beach in your local country, you go to Miami. Um, and then because of that, they also happen to be able to sustain themselves financially to then start a startup. But then in their mind, coming to the U.S. is coming to Miami versus coming to San Francisco. And seven years ago, like that's a very incorrect logic. Right, you want to play at the NBA mm -hmm. where you know we played, and uh, so well, uh, it's funny. I yeah, so many of the entrepreneurs that I met in 2013 in Miami ended up moving to the SF and working in SF over the last eight years, and um, I imagine many of them are moving back to Miami now. So it's it's kind of funny how it came full circle. Like I love it. Um, it, it did, you know, I I I can think of two in my mind who were uh you know entrepreneurs i met in 2014 and kept in touch with and they yeah they, they tried and you know built something in latin america exited you know modest and moved on to sf and you know worked at breakout sf tech companies and they're now probably likely to start companies soon and go back to um 
you know, whatever ecosystems that they're most excited about building in. And I think for a lot of them, it, it probably is going to be Latin America and Miami. I mean, I think there's also so much activity happening in Latin America right now um, with fintech. Um, you just see, you know, economies being rebuilt as mobile first economies and um, leapfrog opportunities to build financial products and financial services that are, um, I think, going to be incredibly powerful, disruptive um, forces uh, for good in Latin America. Perfect. Yes. Yes. But you also, though, uh, regarding the Miami stuff, I'm going to quote from a tweet, right? That you, you, It's a tweet from you, December 15th. So, so I can't believe that there's still a debate on tech Twitter and I'm about to wait in. Uh, but Miami and Austin are great cities. But I suspect many who move there would be disappointed to find a lot of the same problems they sought to escape. Plus, they're, they're like really, really hot. <laughs> Well, the the summer in in Austin and the summer in Miami, I just having lived decent amounts of time in both, they're they're serious stuff. But I, you know, look, I think at the time when I tweeted that December, I think I was a little um, exhausted by how down people were on San Francisco and how up people were on Miami and Austin. I'm very excited about what I see, you know, happening in Miami and Austin, and I think. You know, I grew up in Kentucky. I love the idea of innovation ecosystems spreading across the U.S. But I do think, um, you know, generally in life, it's the case that um, to some extent, the grass is always greener on the other side, right? And also, I think to some extent, when people um, look at something as the solution to all their problems, it's more complex than that. And I think I was reacting to people who, you know, I think have... Some people have an attitude that um, SF is completely done and failed and it's a broken city and there's nothing to appreciate about SF and that, um, you know, these places they're moving to are utopia. And there's definitely, um, life is gray, right? It's not black and white. There's still a lot of beautiful things about the Bay Area and things I appreciate, certainly problems as well and a ton of exciting things happening in these emerging ecosystems like Miami and Austin. And I'm actually very bullish on them, but I'd also say um, no place is perfect. So really that's, that was the tweet. That's yeah, I agree. I look like you, the only way to find peace is within yourself, right? It's not that that's right. uh, all of the problems of your life will be solved because you've moved to Miami. But I must say though, you know, not seeing nice. homeless anymore <laughs> or needles or human shit on my sidewalk. And I live right downtown, right? Like right on Mission and Third by the Salesforce Tower. And But I lived everywhere in the city. I have lived in Pack Heights. I've lived in the Mission. Um, I've lived in Presidio. I've lived in Soma. And, you know, I grew up lower middle class Brazil. My mom has been kidnapped twice. The shit I've seen in San Francisco... I've never seen anywhere else. It's just this absolute lack of care with um, humanity for, for, you know, from the people that claim that they really care about the people. Uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, I agree with you. Uh, there are still pockets of the city that are amazing. Uh, you know, including where you live and other, other aspects. It's like, you know, they're nice, they're safe, they're good, but, it, but it's just not a, um, it's not everywhere. And for the cost of living, for me, at least, you know, like I couldn't just see the, 
the return over equity was just going down. And um, and frankly, like Austin for me was not a choice because of the mm. fact that I, you know, invest in the US and LATAM. Um, mm-hmm. And I was just very tired of being so far away from the rest of the world, right? Uh, working on a Pacific time. San Francisco is very far from everywhere else. Um, if you're doing global business versus Miami, you, you know, you're a direct flight to almost everywhere in the world. It's kind of cool in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but two years ago, um, and we don't, we don't make this about Miami, but two years ago, I, I was in a previous relationship and I, and I spent like a week and a half to two weeks in Miami exploring, uh, houses with, with, with an ex-girlfriend. And I left this place feeling like, oh, if I move here, uh, I got to pack a, like a Glock or like a Colt 45 so I can shoot myself the minute I land because it was just uh, the level of like superficiality and that whole, you know, uh, orange Lamborghini Chanel bag, plastic surgery vibe. I was like, how I've been, mean, you know, like we, we love to work, right? Like, you know, as, as, as investors and founders, we're addicted to the game, at least I am. And um so that's the i think the pandemic is what really made miami a viable option to actually build mm-hmm. something yeah. interesting because you know you you will never it would be very difficult to compare miami university or fiu with you know berkeley or stanford like you know, let's just be honest and then um they're great universities don't get me wrong but they are at a different level in terms of their track record in terms of building businesses right so but with the fact that you can have hybrid teams or remote teams right now um a lot of different places are viable options basically i think that that's an very very important this is not about taxes right you know totally totally i look i think the um dispersion of talent the um rise of remote and distributed teams um the um, openness of different cities across the U.S. to trying to attack, attract talent and reward talent and create opportunities, like all of those are incredibly positive things, um, without a doubt. It's going to be fascinating to see how it plays out over the next um, two to four years. I think what's interesting is, you know, in the Bay Area, we're now at a really low case count and most people are somewhere between fully vaccinated or like line of sight to fully vaccinated. And, um, you know, I've started to do some meetings in person again, but it's definitely not what I think it would have been if we had gotten to this stage in some alternative universe eight months ago. I think we would have been rushing back to the way things are were. And I don't really see that happening here. Um, it's interesting. My friends in New York, it feels like things are returning to it's kind of be a the summer world of love in New York. Yeah. Like everybody in New York's getting together, right? Uh, and and having meetings in person and they're back in the office. And I haven't really seen it happening like that in the Bay Area. And of course, yeah, Miami, it feels like it's, uh, you know, um, happening more than ever, at least in our bubble. So it's oh, going to be very interesting to see amazing. how it develops. Yeah. I, I mean, here I walk around, I'm living in Brickell, and then you walk around. Uh, the neighborhood in the morning where everyone is doing their runs and walks and you start bumping into other people and you just, yeah. it's awesome. Like it's exactly how it used to be in, in SF, but in a different way because, you know, the sun is out, the weather is nicer, people are pretty. Um, and uh, uh, and you don't have just stack rec, you have a diverse group of people and you can have a difference of opinion. And then, uh, you know, there isn't a woke police that will try to like censor you. Like you can be, you know, we can be sharing a meal and have a disagreement. And you know what? We're mature, civilized adults, and we'll continue to be friends, although we have differences of opinions in certain topics. And 
this is what was always brought me and attracted me to America, which was, you know, a place where I move in here with no money, no connections. And, you know, as long as you work hard and pay your taxes, uh, you can do well for yourself. So, um, you know, I, I agree with you observing it, it should be interesting. What I, all my SF friends that I've been talking to, they feel like, Hey, there's still some sort of like a, I don't think it depression is, is the right word, but it's more kind of like, um, the return is very slow. And I don't know if it's because people are just so busy with, um, with zoom or if there's still quite a lot of fear instilled in, uh, in their minds and, they they're in this like toxic like media i i i don't know i honestly <laughs> but uh i still have uh, a place in uh palo alto uh, i'll continue to be there once uh, it's clear that you can go and spend a few days and meet people in person without having to ask a, you know 10 different questions and being weird to greet them and all that stuff like i'll be in back in the in, we, you know atman we have a we have a we have an office in in, in palo alto as well so it's basically kind of like i'll be a frequent visitor um uh, all the way until i can continue to pay taxes in florida <laughs> <laughs> because you don't you, yeah. you don't make you don't make the move because of taxes but when you do the math it's a very nice cherry on the top let me put it that way yeah yeah uh, totally like i have plenty of friends that have um have have made the move and have done the math and um you know i i, I do feel like i have to say there's still a lot about the bay area that i love so and and i don't um nothing you say that i vehemently disagree with I am yeah. interesting, interested to see how it plays out over the next um, over the next two two years because I think um, there is likely going to be. I mean, look, uh, housing prices are still crazy, but rental prices are just down like thirty percent and st still are. And um, lots of I think problems that need to be solved. But I'm I'm not a all hope is lost person. Um, I, I feel like we might be reaching the breaking point where some of these challenges, we do get some line of sight on improvements. So housing, like like cost of living, I think being one, if people leave, like the cost of living goes down, right? Um, so um, it's gonna be an interesting, interesting next couple of years, what the future of work looks like, where talent concentrates, moves. But I say what I said earlier, which is, you know, people, um, pursuing you know new places to live and building and all this is positive like it's it's a good thing uh, in the macro um and i'm i'm so excited to see what the rest of 2021 looks like i mean it um obviously globally we still have massive massive reasons for concern but in our you know in the us there's a lot of reasons for optimism i agree well it's the whole buffett thing never bet against america right and then <laughs> uh which 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 i think it's uh it's fantastic um but you know c coming back to your story though i it, 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 um so when was when did you make the transition from uh working uh producing tech events to then you know join mckinsey and another question is what did you have in mind when you said i want to be a management consultant because i find yeah. that uh, oftentimes when we're very young and we want to do either if you want to do consulting or banking, they have a very romanticized view of the job. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think that's yeah. well, well, I think I think the reality, Pedro, is I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I um, 
I think it was a decision that I don't regret. I learned a lot and I made a lot of great friends, but it definitely was uh, knowing everything I know today, um, the case that I probably would have taken a different path, but at the same time, it was a great path for me. So yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd had an opportunity to intern at McKinsey when I was a junior in college and um, did a summer internship, got my ass kicked, uh, barely got a return offer. Um, it was a really good eye-opening experience for me, actually, because I think up until that point in my career, and I'd always been kind of, or really my life, I'd always been like, if a 91.6 is an A, I'm going to get a 91.6. Like, what's the minimal effort to get a good grade or the minimal effort to get by? Yeah. And oh, that's um, what how good developers are like that, right? They're always lazy. <laughs> exactly. But it's but lazy and, in a smart think, way. Yeah. Well, McKinsey was definitely an environment where, you know, for all of its faults, that didn't work. You know, like I, I got my ass kicked. And um, I actually, you know, that summer at internship McKinsey, I had a mentor that I went to. I'd halfway through the internship and I was getting my ass kicked and I didn't think I was going to get a return offer. And I, you know, went to him and complained about how it's too rigid of a place and how it wasn't a good fit and all this stuff and expected him to kind of give me sympathy. And he was like, look, John, like, you're someone who's never given a hundred percent in anything in your life. Just like try giving a hundred percent at this for the next six weeks of your internship. Just like do it for me. And, uh, it was very tough. Wow. And so I, uh, that is, wow. I, That's a tough yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I did. And, um, and, and I got a return offer and it, uh, by the skin of my teeth. And I, I think I felt like, you know, I had gotten better as a person, um, at least in terms of, knowing what I was capable of. And so, I, you know, I, I got this return offer. I graduated school early. I started working at Tech Week and with another startup on campus. And I, um, you know, did that for a year and a half. And then it kind of came time to go back to McKinsey. And I um, thought, you know, look, I still don't know exactly what I want to do. I want to, um, you know, see industries, different industries, see the world. So I joined, I joined McKinsey uh, again as a full-time consultant. And I, I'd say I went in, frankly, thinking I would probably hate it. Uh, but I was like, ah, just do it for two years, get it on your resume, and then, you know, you get to the next stage in your career. By the way, not the way I would think about career stuff now. But it was, uh, as a, you know, afraid 22-year-old and an insecure overachiever, it was the way I processed the decision at the time. And um, I'll be honest that I actually really enjoyed my two years at McKinsey. I knew it was a bounded experience and that it wasn't something I wanted to do for a career, but I got to travel the world. I got to work in Italy for a long time in Milan. I got to work across the US and actually spent a bunch of time in Texas and Austin and some time in Miami, some time in LA. Got to work across a bunch of industries, um, worked in healthcare and insurance and financial services. and worked for a hearing aid company for six months randomly, learned more about hearing aids than any 22-year-old uh, who doesn't have a hearing problem should, should know about hearing aids. And um, I got to the end of those two years and thought like, okay, I'm definitely sick of this. I'm ready to move on to the next stage of my career. But I did, you know, to this day, have some incredible friends and mentors that I made there. Um, and, and actually, I think still lean on some of the stuff I learned there as a VC. I mean, we you know, as you know, I mostly do enterprise software. Um, and so I've seen what it's like trying to sell software into um, a manufacturing facility in, you know, Midwestern US or what, you know, the challenges are working in large health systems. And so um, I wouldn't say I went into McKinsey expecting it to be a career. I wanted it to be a learning experience and it kind of helped me get to the next stage of my career. And um, 
I have to be honest that it, it did that for me. At the same time, um, I'll also say I, I wouldn't probably ever hire McKinsey if I were running a business. Um, it, it did feel like a place where um, really smart people, but the presentation of the answer mattered more than getting to the right answer. Yeah. Right? Well, there's that great uh, um, Showtime show on consultants, right? Uh, was, have, you, have you seen yeah, that, that one? That's, yeah, House of Lies. Yeah, that's yeah. that's. I can't say that was what my consulting experience was like. I wish that that would have been more fun. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's uh, that's 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 definitely a sensationalized view. Yeah. But um, but no, I, I, I definitely you know got what I wanted out of it and then was ready to do the next thing. Look, like I have have never worked, of course, as a as a, as a consultant, uh, but I learned so much with all the materials that come out from McKinsey, Bain, BCG, and I've hired, uh, you know, people that have been a part of these organizations. And I think it's almost kind of like some of the things that you learn there should be applied in uh, high school, you know, or even college. Like that's where all every human, in my opinion, should learn some of those things. It's just not the end all be all path for life, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, I think, you know, you learn to problem solve um, in, in consulting. And, and by that, I mean, you know, take a problem, break it down into its components, kind of build the issue tree, build the hypothesis tree and go very kind of structured, very like analytical problem solving. Um, I would say that, you know, candidly, that felt like about 20% of the work there. And then 80% was sort of proving the hypothesis and making the presentation and kind of making making the answer look really good. Um, but that 20% of the work was so much fun. And and I, I really did enjoy it. And I definitely apply those skills as an investor. That's great. That's great. And then, oh, thanks for the, the honest uh, answer there. And then uh, the, uh, and Milan is great as well. I, uh, I uh, yeah, I have an Italian citizenship. I uh, I've only been really? three times. Yes, you sono cittadino italiano anche. Uh, oh, I, <laughs> way better than I'm not going to attempt that. Good, good job. <laughs> uh, I I I would love to die in Italy. That would be pretty great. Um, yeah, you know, just spend the rest of my living days there. Uh, yeah, because it's uh, it's just so perfect. It's such a good like lifestyle. Incredible people. Yeah, it was um, it was such a cool experience, man, and so humbling and amazing to get to do business in an international context early in my career. And um, the thing that I just never forget was, you know, I'd be in these meetings with, um, you know, nine, 10 executives at this company, um, people who had decades of business experience. And, um, you know, we'd be doing the meeting in English and I'd have to, you know, leave the room, go to go to the bathroom, I'd come back and they'd all be speaking Italian and then they'd go right back in English for me. And just that was so, um, you know, wonderful of them to do that for me. And they went out of their way to make me feel welcome and um, got to work with a really amazing client over there, people that I keep in touch with. And um, it was definitely a, a formative experience living abroad and working abroad. So. Nice. And then how, when did you decide that you wanted to do venture? Because it's not, I, I know that, uh, VC companies do hire, uh, you know, folks that are almost on their like second year McKinsey type. Like it, it is a, a typical thing that I know people look for and they want, right? Like the breakdown, the mental models, actually like 
that is a conversation I had with Neil, right? So uh, uh, about you, meaning, uh, did they go after you or is it something already that you were like, oh, I want to do venture? Because you and I know, having been in this industry for seven years, uh, I think, you know, give or take, we kind of start at the same time. Uh, every 15 days, some bozo gets in touch with you saying, oh, I want to break into venture. Can I pick your brain, right? Like that, that, all, that always kind of happens and people have this very incorrect vision of what the work is or even what is necessary yep. to succeed in the business. Um, so so how, what were you thinking back then? Uh, because I think this could be very helpful advice for people that want to get into venture because you know your career is a, is a brilliant one, right? Like you got in uh, as an associate today or a partner. Uh, so it's like this very clear progress and evolution that's rare to see at the same firm. Right, like you see, people sometimes like they're jumping around to get up, up, you know, bump t title bumps and so forth. And no, you've been able to like just build a very focused um, career, which is so impressive. Yeah, thanks. I um, I got incredibly lucky, and honestly, anytime someone reaches out to me for advice, um, I, I try to make time, and I usually start by saying, you know, I'll give you the advice, but don't do what I do. Do what I say, but not what I did, because I got <laughs> lucky. I mean, I got it was a very um, serendipitous set of uh, events that led to me joining Costanoa. So, you know, I wrapped up my um, two years uh, in wrap it up. I was, you know, hitting the two year market McKinsey and kind of knowing I was ready to try something new. And um, I started looking to try to find startup jobs and applying to startups. And as you know, in Chicago, I didn't have a technical background as a consultant. And so the roles that you get funneled into are like, Google BizOps, and at the time Uber was hiring really aggressively, and um, you know bigger companies and kind of businessy roles, not really you know the startup grind of building product and selling product. And so, and, um, and probably in Chicago, the those. pay for that compared to what you would make in, in a, at McKinsey, uh, it, it would suck. And maybe lifestyle also, because it, I know I know I know you and your values, so I know it's not just about the money and the salary, um, but it's also kind of like the lifestyle of a consultant. There are cool perks to it, uh, specifically if you're young yeah. and single. So then, but if you're doing biz ops at a local Uber office, or if you're helping the AdSense team sell more, fuck, I mean, it's like that is there. As a matter of fact, I think that these are the people that fucked San Francisco up. We can have a whole nother conversation <laughs> about that uh, oh, because man. the fall down well, of I, the city started with the people throwing rocks at the Google bus, but you know, that's a whole nother, anyway. <laughs> just meaning it's an intellectually boring I, uh, job. Yeah, I think that's, I think the later stage stuff. I mean, the, the honest answer, Pedro, is if I'd found something earlier stage, I would have done it. I just didn't even really know what to look for and how to find it. Um, and um, I tried and I got, you know, in this process with some early stage companies, but I was, um, you know, I just like, there's so much I didn't know and I didn't want to go work at Google or at Uber. And, um, and so around this time, I'm struggling to find a startup gig um, or at least knowing what to look for. And I, um, a lot of my friends were recruiting for private equity. And this is where, you know, I did something that this is where I got just stupid lucky. I, um, I ended up talking to this headhunter who was doing private equity recruiting. And I just thought, okay, maybe I, maybe I just understand what this is about. And, you know, insecure overachiever in me, like a lot of people leave McKinsey and go do private equity and maybe I can do private tech, private equity. And so I got, um, into a process with, you know, like the big tech PE players. Um, yeah. So like you know, Silver Lake and Vector and okay. um, got, you know, 
all the way to the end of the process with them. And then I just had the moment of like, what am I doing? I don't actually want to do this at all. And um, I went back to the headhunter I was working with and said, you know, hey, I'm, I'm sorry, you're going to kill me, but like my heart isn't in this and I really don't want to do this. But if you've got any like startups you're recruiting for, I'd love to do startups. And um, and she was surprisingly very cool about it and said, you know, look, I, I don't recruit for startups, but there's this venture capital firm that's starting up called Costa Noa. And if you're interested in startups and, you know, you did well in your private equity interviews, so I'm guessing you'll do well in these. Like, do you want to talk to Costa Noa? And so um, I took that offer really not even understanding what I was signing up for. I, I knew a little bit about what venture capital was, but I wasn't. Um, and I feel guilty saying this because there's so many people that um, I think have you know genuine passion for venture and want to get into venture really bad. And I think that's probably grown a lot over the last five and a half years. But at the time, I was like, yeah, that, that could be interesting. Sure. Like, I'll talk to him. And so um, I got connected to uh, the founder of our firm, Greg Sands. And um, ended up getting breakfast with him in San Francisco or Palo Alto, actually. And um, yeah, just hit it off with him. Like that was that was actually what attracted me to venture into Costa Noa. It was like I thought Greg would be an amazing mentor and someone I could learn a lot from. Nice. You know, he was a uh, uh, first product manager at Netscape, like dawn of the internet. Um, Where'd you guys have breakfast? For, uh, Life Kitchen on Hamilton Avenue in uh, in Palo yeah. Alto, and it is now no longer in business, unfortunately. Yes. but uh, that was the natural we had, like, we had uh, orange restaurant, right? That served like all these like super yeah. nice, like oh, yeah. So, so I went there with a, a, a Neo and so a walking distance, right? Oh, that's so funny. It's so yeah. so that closed. That kind of sucks. Yeah, I've got put that on the Gavin Newsom yeah. tab then. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, so good. We, place. Uh, yeah, we we just hit it off, and I I really you know thought he was someone I'd enjoy working with. And so I got to know him better, did my own research about venture. And, you know, I, I don't, I'm not trying to say this is mock humility. I don't know why they hired me, but they did. And um, I uh, joined the firm in 2016, just ready to learn and trying to, you know, um, figure out what this whole venture thing was and, and thought I'd do it for two years. Like thought like this is my two year thing and then I'm going to go start my company or I'm going to go join a startup. I'm going to learn what a startup does. I'm going to learn what they look like, learn what to look for and then I'm going to go do it. And of course, you know, famous last words. Um, so um, that's, that's how I got into venture. I love uh, it. It's not, well, I, it's not, the way to do it. Right? Well, I, I my my um, story but... was very random as well. I never thought I'd be doing this for a living. And today is such an important part of my life. I love the work as well, but it was, uh, it was also very random. Uh, basically, uh, the, I was, I was to ascend grid. Uh, I had my, it was my fourth row there. And I was basically running uh, the West coast side of our um, startup program. And uh, a funders club, uh, you know, FCVC, they were looking for someone to actually help them uh, do uh, investor relations and community building with the LPs. So they got in touch with me for that uh, through a recruiter. And I, it was very similar to you. I was like, oh, this seems interesting. I, mean, I get along with, you know, the folks at uh, Techstars and Bessemer uh, and Foundry Group that invested in us there. Um, you know, I enjoy aspects of the business of venture capital, but never thought that I would make that a, an important part of my life. Um, and when I had the, when we scheduled the meeting and I started learning and researching more and more, something clicked for me. I was like, wow, actually, I think that 
I can be very good at this if I have enough discipline and luck and I try my best. So instead of um, having just an informational call, uh, usually when I'm in, get into something, I, I'm very obsessed about it. And um, I basically talked to over 35 different CEOs, built, wrote two investment uh, memos for them, and I would get the founders to share information with me on the premise of, uh, under the assumption that's like, look, I'm interviewing for a role in a VC firm. Share this info with me under the base of trust. And if that goes well, it will be in front of these investors. They're great. You know, they see that uh, these nice companies such as Coinbase and Instacart, uh, maybe uh, they could also seed you. And I was having all these calls. I wrote them. They were blown away. They were like, who is this maniac that, you know, basically just wrote these memos, found these things. And um, they created a role for me. They weren't hiring for an associate. So I'm very grateful for uh, for Boris and Alex at that time and Jared, uh, uh, you know, for, for putting putting it all uh, together and trusting me. And then I, I want to ask you this question as well. For me, there's also a moment where, you know, you're starting in venture capital and you have all sorts of insecurities, right? Oh my God, how can I win? What am I going to do? It seems so competitive. It's all impossible, oh, right? Like uh, Sequoia. To this day. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. You wake up every day, you're at war, uh, first with yourself and then with the rest of the world. Uh, and, and then you got to find peace during the day. So, uh, but basically I was like, all right, how am I even going to succeed? And I remember, you know, they said, uh, look like you have three months to source it. You otherwise you're fired. Um, and, uh, wow. unfortunately, you know, I did Pipeify as the first investment, uh, and, uh, and then Rappi as the second one, both at the seed level. So you want to yeah, get lucky yeah, right. and you want to get lucky early. Yeah. Uh, but, but the minute that it clicked for me, John was when I started interacting with all these people that I thought were fucking great. They had all these amazing firms and these, you know, folks that present so well. And I, I just realized that there's a, such a significant amount of the industry that is based upon lies and entitlement. And they just, you know, don't do the basics of like following on their word and promises and just showing up on time. The ones that are at the top, I couldn't agree more right? with that. Like the ones yeah. that are at the top, they are maniacs well, okay. at, at that. They get, they get mm -hmm. back to you. They're right. always on it. Like they're just so professional. So it's like, Oh, there's an opportunity. Uh, and then when I saw that I could, you know, if I put, if I really applied myself, I could, you know, hopefully one day, you know, make the hall of fame. I was like, all right, I'm going to do this for like, like in a pretty serious way. Um, how was it for you? The moment that you've like, instead of, Hey, yeah. just a two year thing, I actually like, Hey, I want to do this yeah. for, for life. Yeah. Well, I, I'll answer your question, but I just first circle back because I'm sure a lot of people listening to this podcast are maybe interested in venture and the way you did it is exactly the right way to do it, which is you, um, just start doing the job. You know, just start meeting entrepreneurs and start finding opportunities and start um, blogging and writing about what's interesting to you, you know, writing about companies that you think are exciting. And um, that is the right way to do it. Um, and like I said, I got very lucky where someone gave me an opportunity through a more traditional interview process, but that's the right way to do it. So um, recommend that to anybody trying to break into venture. That's always the advice I give. Um, but no, I think what you said, I completely agree with, which is, uh, you know, the reality is the bar. Um, to be a empathetic VC, to be someone who actually cares and to be someone who actually works and tries to create value for companies is just incredibly low. Um, and that's a shame and, and like a um, unfortunate reflection on the industry, but it is low. 
Um, and I think um, it's like any other industry, but I think more than people realize um, you got to be someone who can do the work and understand and make good decisions. But so much of it's just work, just hustle, right? Um, and just putting in the effort. And I think I had a very similar um, experience to you uh, when I came into Costanoa the only associate and everybody around me was um, experienced and knew what they were doing and were seeing deals and it had a perspective. And I was trying to figure out what SAS stood for. <laughs> and I think it, uh, it did take me about a year to get to a point where I thought, hey, long, longer than you, frankly, to feel like, oh, wow, I actually, one, really love this. And two, I think I can be good at this. Um, and it was actually when I made my first investment, um, about a year into Costa Noa, a company called Roadster, um, which um, has been so much fun partnering with and has um, been a company that has done, you know, this is luck as much as anything, but done really, really well um, since we invested. And it was um, working on that investment, understanding how to, how to do the work and build a thesis. And then, um, you know, I joined the board after that investment as an observer and got to observe my partner, Greg, as a board member and start to do the post-investment work. And I'd actually say I love sourcing deals and competing and winning and doing that work, but it's actually the post-investment work that um, really keeps me, um, you know, like I have infinite capacity to um, get on a call with an entrepreneur and try to talk through a problem or figure out how I can be helpful. Um, it, it's, that's that's where I kind of found what felt like my calling, which was, um, I've, you know, fortunate to have a firm that really believes in supporting companies post investment that takes a very high concentration and high conviction model. So I usually only do, you know, two, three investments a year, um, over five years. That means I'm now working on nine companies and, um, you know, those nine companies, I take it really seriously, helping them succeed, helping them raise capital, helping them recruit and win great talent, helping them find customers. And, that's the stuff that um, when I when I realized I got to do that in this job and that if you did it right, you actually were special because most people don't really lean into doing that work. That was when I um, the light bulb clicked like, oh, actually, this is what I want to do with my career. Nice. Yeah, well, we are in incredibly lucky. It's insane because we're basically we get paid to have an opinion. If we're right, we make uh, we can make quite a lot of money, but ultimately, like the job here is to just be a good person and helpful. And then that's the intrinsic motivation, even to, you know, and this is all the work of Matt, our amazing producer, but you know, there's a tweet also from you on March 30th. So it's like very recent tweet said, producing returns for LPs is a VC's job, right? And we treat it seriously, but LPs are shareholders while founders are customers. And I found that the best VCs are more motivated by finding and helping great founders and letting returns flow. From, flow from that then being motivated primarily by money and i mean that is spot on um you know which which in the end i think it's just that's why all of us do so much sales because business is personal and whoever says that it's not is typically probably fucking you and then uh and i think in our world because we invest so early in the lives uh you know these organizations it's even it's even more true no, that's right. Uh, I mean, the thing to, um, I mean, I think is, is a lot, a lot of VCs, I think, um, and, and I do think you have to be deliberate about reminding yourself of it, but you're not the man in the arena, um, uh, or the woman in the arena. You are 
a supporter of that person. And you've got to always remember that when you're talking to an entrepreneur, you are talking to someone who's put it all on the line and is pursuing their dream. This is their, like every entrepreneur you talk to, this is their dream. And that, um, if you, if you forget that, I think you very quickly lose, um, credibility as a venture capitalist because you're, um, you're, this, this isn't private equity. It isn't, um, a hedge fund. It is a people business. And you, you gotta remember that the people you're dealing with are putting it all on the line to pursue their dream. And doesn't mean you can't tell them, Hey, you got to step it up or, Hey, you're not working. This isn't working the way it should. And you need to change course. In fact, it, increases the stakes and makes it more important to find the way to say that to them. But you got to acknowledge the risk they're taking and that um, being a founder of a company is an incredibly lonely and difficult job. And um, it's just, again, it's an unfortunate reality. I just think a lot of VCs lose sight of that um, because they're in a position where they get to sit on a, you know, big hill and (laughs) sand hill and basically say like, nope, 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 yes, nope, nope, right? And that um, it's easy to fall into a trap of thinking that you're the person that matters because you're the one who gets to say yes, no. But that's just capital allocation. That's not actually the value creation of building the company. And that's that's the entrepreneur. I love it. Well, I agree 110%. And that's why also the name of the show and the whole ethos is about partnering with inevitable people, because right, like I, I would like to believe that I have the humility of understanding that, you know, everyone that I partner with, that we partner with, like, if they take or don't take my money, they'll get there, because they are inevitable. But by virtue of actually making a decision of taking um, our capital, uh, they just get there faster. That's uh, that's that's that. uh, so ultimately we're just like an acceleration of success. That's all. That's all we are. But you know, because uh, I think that you know, they, they all the very good ones. They just they just have this unshakable belief that they will win, irrespective of anything. Like you know, and then but over over time also they adapt, right? That's right. That's right. Um, so. What do you think have been some of your biggest regrets as an investor in terms of like decisions that you uh, do you already do you have already an anti portfolio that, uh, that oh, you yeah. talk about? Oh yeah, definitely. I was actually looking at it this morning. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, there's there's a there's a bunch. I, I mean I think the um, I'd say there's there's sort of two classes of, of um, regrets. Um, one one class is when um, I I knew the person was someone really special that was going to figure it out, but I also knew there were challenges in front of them that they needed to figure out. And I didn't invest because I saw clearly the challenges and I wasn't willing to make the high conviction bet on the person. And that um, has always been a regret. You know, it's just like, that's, that's so, you know, I'm thinking of a company, um, in particular, where I looked at the business and said, like, there's actually a pretty big problem in front of you. And I didn't invest. And, um, and within six months, they fixed the problem, right. And, and I brought the problem with the founder and, and kind of, he knew it was a problem, but it was, um, it was that there's, there's a whole class of investment misses that I'd put there. And, and I mentioned the company, but it was a personnel related thing. So I'd rather not. Um, 
but I'll I'll give you another Thanks. example. I mean, the, the other the other class, frankly, for me has been um, Tam and misunderstanding the total addressable market and thinking it was smaller than it was. And I think that's actually, I think it's Bill Gurley said somewhere, it's like, you know, VCs get themselves in a lot of trouble when they overthink Tam. Um, you know, there's like the famous article on Uber from 2013, where someone estimated Uber's Tam at like 700 million. And obviously they're doing, you know, 10x that in revenue now, um, more than that. And I think the, um, the question there and those deals has always been underestimating growth and also underestimating kind of adjacencies and what the company could be if it really achieves the big vision. Um, and so, you know, the, one of the companies that I, you know, was looking at this morning and just kicking myself for the fifth or sixth time uh, is a company called ClearBank, now called Clear.co. Dude, um, I met and so uh, it's, I met Andrew, Andrew in at South by Southwest when he was yeah, doing a whole nother different company called Top Hat Monocle, uh, yep. and. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, when, when I looked at the company, they were primarily, so, you know, this is a company that basically is, um, think of it as a commercial bank for, um, SMBs and large, you know, moving up market into larger enterprises that uses alternative data sets to underwrite and finance, um, you know, um, offer loans. Right. And at the time their business was, um, primarily Airbnb hosts. So they'd look at Airbnb reservation data and say, We'll give you a loan to upgrade your Airbnb. That'll let you charge a higher rent, and then we'll, you know, you'll pay back over a period of time. And it was a great business, but I kind of did all the work and said, you know, the Airbnb market's just not that big, and it's kind of all the revenue today. And they had a vision of what comes after Airbnb and what the next verticals would be, but they were pretty early. And um, and I think I got too hung up on the tam of what phase one was. And now I think Airbnb is probably, I don't know the numbers, small percent of their revenue. They've expanded into e-commerce and a bunch of other verticals. And um, that, there's a bunch of investments I'd put in that category of underestimating TAM because I didn't think about all the places it could apply. Could apply. Yeah. Another one would actually be an investment you did uh, at Funders Club, Sendbird, where the oh, early yeah. customers yeah. were all you know gaming customers doing multiplayer chat, like massive scale multiplayer chat. Numbers were great. John, the entrepreneur there is extraordinary. Uh, and I just thought, man, you know, how many people are going to need like multiplayer, massively scalable chat? And I did a whole like bottom up analysis. And what I missed there was just, you know, chat is going to be a part of every application and applications are going to grow and you're going to want scalability because all of these, all of these different segments they can attack are growing. And um, that was another, another miss for sure. Yeah. Interesting. Well, for me, with Sendbird specifically, I think the background of uh, SendGrid really helped. And I remember having a conversation with with Boris about this. I was like, we got we got we got to invest in this company. And I really really liked John. Uh, he was the if you can describe the perfect uh, South Korean uh, hustle founder. That was him. You know, he was just getting all. I remember I think eBay and all these other logos. Uh, they were just their subsidiaries in South Korea. Um, and through that, expanding to global contracts, and um, it was heavily focused on on, on gaming. But um, I don't know. I was such an email nerd that I was like, everyone is going to need chat at some point. So, um, mm -hmm. and if uh, and I sent the API to a few of the laziest developers I know, and then they all loved it. <laughs> um, it was easy to integrate. You know, it had right. that be the beauty of a Stripe type of stuff and. Um, so that was, uh, that was, that, that was, a, I, although like 
the TAM thing, I think it's it's where we really get hung up on. Um, and for me, for, for instance, it's very hard to give a true step function credit for a founder where they say, oh, yes, yeah, so now I'm doing this, but tomorrow I'm going to do this plus that. Um, and um, and sometimes I think that the issue though is even like you know because if you if, if you do know the person really well you know it's going to happen and they will be able to execute and they learn and they iterate fast but sometimes if you just met this individual and you only have two weeks to make a massive decision with millions of dollars on the line um, how do you trust that that person will have that vision in the future right and you know sometimes you only understand that you've made a mistake a year and a half two years later um, uh, so. Um, so yeah, that is yeah. Uh, well, it's, the, um, it's difficult. But the thing that can drive you crazy in venture for sure is just how long the feedback cycles are. Um, you just don't know for a long time. And even, you know, I've definitely had it where companies that I thought, man, I missed on that one. And then 12 months after having that feeling thought, oh, no, I was right. Like there was that big problem that was going to rear its head at some point. Um, and not that I take any... Like I, I, I want every company I pass on to become a massive company, but, um, but it is hard to know for a long period, what you, um, what, whether you're making good decisions or not, and you get some intermediate signal of, you know, markups and the like, but you don't really know until you get to, you know, exits and, you know, I'm six years into Costa Nova, I've got knock on wood, like one exit coming down the pipe, but that's one of, you know, the 12 investments I've made. So it takes a long time. Yeah, we're, I'm in uh, same uh, same boat now. I think next year I'll have first IPOs, but then it takes a while. It's seven years, so um, and you know it's uh, it's interesting. I I would say though that one thing that I found that really helps me make good decisions is um, being very calm. And I know that meditation is also such an important part of your life and. Um, the dumbest investment decisions I've made, I was agitated. I was either over-caffeinated or tired uh, or I was drinking too much. And, and by drinking too much, I mean like, you know, in a non-COVID world, right, there are weeks where like every night you're out and you're having a dinner and it's always a special occasion because we have a founder or an LP. So you're always drinking and you're kind of like overloading your system with shit and you don't really think straight. Um, so I... Uh, I don't know. I've uh, in the beginning of my career in venture, I would, I would, I took an offense, like a really, I was on the offense of meeting people, and now I've significantly reduced the amount of uh, meetings I have, uh, and I think so much better because of that. It's it's crazy. Yeah, I think the um, I agree. Not just in investment decision making, but also supporting companies post investment. I think the biggest surprise for me and uh, my venture career is that. Before I started InVenture, I kind of thought, you know, startups were exponential curves or they failed, right? And that it's like a pretty smooth transition from like you're either winning and you're growing and you're taking over the world or you're not. Yo, another thing I want to just talk about is just hobbies, right? Um, by the way, I got the Jimi Hendrix uh, Wawa. Thank you. Uh, okay, good. Wah, thank you. Good, good. You should also get the uh, Marshall Distortion pedal in a week or so if it hasn't arrived it, it, yet. So, yeah. I uh, for for, it, it, for for those listening, I accidentally lost Pedro's guitar pedals, so had to replace uh, them. 
Thank you it's for all good. <laughs> Don't worry. You are you are you are you are the nicest person ever. Don't worry. Uh, it's uh, I I am so looking forward to get back at playing the guitar and you know I know that for you uh, I was traveling, you know for a good amount of time during COVID so, uh, which is a whole other thing. But um, uh, you know you you how long for how you you play really well and for how long have you been playing at this point? Oh, I uh, definitely not not really well, but I've played guitar since I was um, yeah sixth sixth seventh grade. I grew up playing piano and then um, switched to guitar yeah middle school time frame, um, and uh, yeah lo love love music and producing it and playing it and um, I I played in a band in high school and then again out of college, but I haven't you know found one since I've been in the Bay Area. I'm definitely always on the to do list, but haven't gotten around to it. Um, But yeah, music is a great outlet for sure. Um, and uh, we, unfortunately, these virtual jamming softwares, they don't work very well. So uh, we're, we're going to have to get together in person in Miami if we want to jam together. Let's again. do it. I, uh, we're, uh, we'll be ready for you. And then, uh, uh, all right. So what, uh, what's next in terms of your, vi you know, when you think about where you want to be a decade from now, I, I'd say that everyone that has been in, in our shoes and being in venture for, you know, the six, seven, eight years that we've been in the, in, in this, in this, um, role today, um, I'm, I'm, I'm far less anxious. I'm just so calm. And I always think about the decisions for a decade plus, you know, there's this whole thing I talk about funeral alignment. So, you know, I just want to make a decision that's going to be okay. If uh, you and I, we die tomorrow and you know, we're good. There's no, there's, there are no issues. Everything is always aligned until, until, until death. Um, and uh, what's your take on, on, on going long, right? Uh, now you're a partner of the firm and, you know, a part of this new generation. So what, uh, uh, what motivates you? Like, how do you see the future of all of that? Yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, um, going to something you said earlier, like, I, I do think if you're not, striving to be amongst the best in an industry as competitive as venture capital, you're, um, you're not going to find much success at all. Right. Um, and I think, um, I, I want to help build Costanoa into one of the best early stage boutique venture capital firms in the world. So that's my North star, but, um, I'll be honest that that's, exciting and motivating, but the way you do it is more exciting and motivating, which is I want to work with the most, you know, passionate and amazing people I can and help them build their companies. And, um, and so that's, that's what gets me up every day. And, and I, you know, love the people I get to work with right now. Um, you know, I mentioned there's, you know, nine companies in my portfolio right now where I'm board member, a board observer, and I, um, just love working with them, <laughs> love our conversations, love the challenges and love the ups and the downs. Um, and I think, you know, just want to be constantly getting better um, in terms of better at finding what's next, finding those great entrepreneurs and then better at supporting them post investment. And so um, it's interesting, you know, Pedro, I think you're probably in a um, in a similar stage in, in a lot of ways to me and in a different in some others because you're building your own firm. And that's um, I think incredible and such a, um, a high calling. I mean, it is entrepreneurship as a venture capitalist starting your own firm or entrepreneurships building your own company. I think what I um, am really focused on right now is building Costa Noa to the next level as a VC firm. And I think the, um, 
the biggest area of, of development for me right now is is the work as a board member. Um, you know, I've I've been on boards now for about three years, and that is just like rounds to zero in the time scale of working with partners at other firms who've been building companies and been board members for decades, right? Um, and so, you know, I work with a coach. I have a bunch of great mentors and people I learn from, um, and it's something I've got so much to learn, but. Um, also going back to something you said earlier, it, it helps to work hard. And, um, so lean on that as much as I can. Awesome. No, that's beautiful. And, um, it's also funny cause I've, uh, or invest so early and I've only been a part of a few boards and it's just so different when you are an actual board member, it is way more work, uh, than, uh, just, uh, you know, not, not being a part of the board, but you also get to learn so much by just observing other investors and you know uh at atman we have this word called egregore which is basically a collective of people that have the same values and principles working for one single goal um, and that's what it is for any board you know like and I, I, I my view is that you have to be selective but even as a pre-seed or seed investor you, you should be joining boards a few uh, but then have a life cycle where you do tr know when it's your time to, you know, leave as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. um, and I'll, I'll say like another part of the job that I've just really grown to appreciate so much is being able to sit on boards with other VCs and see how they operate. Um, and so, um, you know, one of my earlier investments, a company, um, Parallel Domain, I got to sit on the board with Sunil Nagaraj uh, oh, yeah. at Ubiquity and see how he operates oh, yeah. and learned a ton from him. Uh, a company called Kepler Communications where there's a partner um, uh, there, Brad Gillespie over at IA Ventures and have gotten to learn you know, so much from him. Um, working with you know, various independent board members, there's just, um, there's so many great people out there that you get to learn from. Um, and that is the best part of being a VC is that you get to learn and get to be exposed to amazing people yes. every day well and soon you also is a great sailor uh we've been uh he is a great I, sailor uh, we've taken we've gone sailing I, together I <laughs> well i i uh i it's funny the first time he invited me to go sailing with him uh i think it was very you know like you you'd invite all everyone and it was very california so i showed up with a cooler, speakers, a bunch of booze, and it was making caipirinhas for everyone and overfeeding, you know. And then, you know, I, I, I and then after that, I think he was like, "Oh, I kind of should always invite Pedro because he, he, he makes, you know, he, he makes our 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 uh, beautiful Marine County sailing boat becomes. Uh, I'll give a Miami uh, party boat. <laughs> I'll tell you, man. I. Uh... I love Sunil and love you and have enjoyed. I've gone sailing with Sunil two or three times. I love Sunil so much that I go sailing with him because I actually hate sailing. That's oh. my, my secret. I just, oh. I get I get bad seasickness. I get kind of claustrophobic on the boat. I want to move around more, but um, but I like the company that Sunil puts together enough that I, I tolerate it and go there sailing you know. with him. He's awesome. Uh, what a what a smart uh, what a smart guy like Sunil is. He's a brilliant person. Uh, anyway, so to uh, wrap it up, I uh, always like to ask these questions, and these are it's, it's, it's so fascinating to see what people uh, say. But you know, if you could like have the perfect like morning routine, like how does that look like, and why? Definitely, um, 
I like to get up early. I usually get up around six. Uh, maybe that's not early for, for some of your audience, but you know, it feels like a good time to get up uh, for me. Um, definitely, you know, get a morning workout in. Um, just such a great way to start the day and clear the mind. So for me, it'd probably be getting on my bike and getting up to the top of Hawk Hill and seeing sunrise. Um, I try to do that at least once a week. Um, you know, come back, uh, make a breakfast, have breakfast with my wife. Um, you know, maybe if I have time, incorporate some morning meditation um, and then get to work. I mean, I, I usually am on calls by 8 a.m. And I, um, I do love the work. So, um, you know, I've, I've seen some people who have these like crazy four-hour morning routines and they don't start until 10 a.m. Like if I'm not on a call or doing some work by 8.30, I'm anxious. I'm like, got to get going on the day. So um, that's probably my, my perfect morning. You're one of those guys. <laughs> yeah, like I knew as soon as I said I get up at six, I was thinking he's thinking I'm I'm a slacker. So you're, you're in bed at 10 and you're up at four. That's impressive. I, I'm very religious about, you know, seven and a half or eight hours of sleep. So I'm usually in bed 1030 or 10 and up at 530 or six. For a while, I had concerns, you know, John, I was like, hey, health wise, I was measuring my sleep. And then I, you know, started doing it with the Apple Watch in this uh, app called the Sleep Tracker. And I also have the eight sleep pod. So it's like two systems measuring the quality of my sleep. And um, and it's been for over a year now. For me, six hours, six and a half is is, is plenty. Um, is enough. Plenty. Um, yeah. yeah, that's uh, that's awesome. But uh, uh, you know, I can't uh, just you know thank you so much, John, for for taking the time. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Uh, if, if you have any entrepreneurs, uh, you know, I know we have most of our audience, basically, like if you're listening and you have a B2B SaaS company um, and you're thinking about raising money, uh, make sure that you are on John's uh, radar because he's certainly one of the good ones. And uh, so, you know, thank you so much, John. It's a, it's a pleasure. I appreciate that, Pedro. No, thank you. It's, it's, a, it's such a pleasure. Always fun to talk to you, man. Thanks for inviting me on the show. And um Appreciate it. Best of luck to all those out there building companies. Awesome. All right. Thanks, man. All right. Chat soon, man. Okay, bye-bye. My dear friends, there we go. We got another episode of the Inevitable Podcast out. Really hope you liked it. For those that are watching, uh, that are watching here, you know, on YouTube, we're also available on every other platform. Your typical Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and uh, I think nine other platforms that you can find on our website. It's pretty impressive the amount of places you can post the podcast these days. Um, make sure to subscribe to us. Uh, give us a review, a like, a thumbs up. That all helps train the algorithms to continue to serve you better. Uh, if you want to stay in touch, uh, it's pretty easy to find me. Uh, just Google my name and you know you will be probably like two to three clicks away to just find a way to get in touch. Anyway, thank you so much. You can always subscribe to my newsletter on pedrostrain.com. That's a place where I start, I post a few things that are not available everywhere else. And I hope to see you next week. Thanks for tuning in.